We've talked about Jesus as the personification of eternal life, not just a way to get to eternal life, but he is the way, the truth, he is the life. Talking about eternal life also as the age to come, the age to come has already come. It is here, we are within it now, although sometimes in the New Testament, they started calling it the last days or of the age to come. Like we're in it, but we're in the last days of it type of a deal. Uh, that we can enter that life by uniting with Jesus. Because if he's the personification of it, if we're united with him, then we get to enter that life and start living like it now. Uh, and we're called to already start living like the restored creation, not... We're starting to call to live like God made up some random set of rules, a random set of do this, don't do that, yada, yada, yada. But he says, guys, this is what I created in the beginning. This is what I called and created humankind to live like. This is for, And all the things that we look at at the do's and the don'ts of the Bible basically lead us back to what God originally created us to be uh, and what he called us to be. And... So uh, in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, it says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you have when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, and then he quotes from Leviticus, uh, Be holy, because I am holy. We're called to live holy lives because that's what we were created to live. Again, it's not God saying, I know I did this creation, da 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 and now later I'm throwing this. No, that's, that's the way Adam and Eve lived until they didn't. <laughs> right? That's what everybody who was at the gar- in the garden, as it were, they were living those lives. Now, we're still waiting for the complete restoration of all things. Okay, we can do what we can do. Control what you can control in the restoration of all things. Which means, to the best of my ability, I control me being holy. Okay, me being righteous. Me being pure. Me being godlike. As the best of my ability, I am controlling that. That's the only thing really I can control. I cannot control victory over death. That's beyond me. I can't control forgiveness of sin. That's beyond me. I can't control the removal of the pain and the suffering and all the other things that God said. Remember, we looked at, you know, because you did this, this is going to happen. I can't control any of that. That's all God's business. And he will restore that at the final restoration. What he's saying now, though, is you guys control what you can control, which is you. Now you start living like you're in the restored age. So we want to build on this and how it pertains to how we see and think about Jesus. And I want to talk today about Jesus in the presence of God. Another thing that God is seeking to restore is this unique relationship with him. A relationship that, that they had at the beginning. All right, this... And so into doing that, and we're going to get into, we're going to talk about several different things. And we're talking about a new heaven and a new earth and Jesus and trying to give into this, uh, this, 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 this relationship that, and the being in God's presence. 
Jesus is much more, as we've already said, much more than an avenue to the new heaven. All right? He's the embodiment, and he's intricately involved in the new creation. Let's jump to the end of the story. Don't you love it? You want to jump to the end of the story. Spoiler alert. Okay. Now, on the spoiler alert, it's not really a spoiler alert. God deemed it necessary that we know a few things. But he left it sufficiently ambiguous enough that it's still going to be some surprises. Okay, plot twists. I don't know what it is going to be. But when you look at the end of all things, what God explains to us, we're going to see it kind of tells us what's going on and what's happening on the big picture, but it leaves out a whole lot of details. So don't worry about ruining the end of the story. We're not going to do that. There's going to be plenty there. We can be confident that God wants us to know something of the grand finale. So let's look at it. So let's turn to Revelation 22. Now, when we talk about Revelation 22, these are the final words of Jesus. These are not John. John is quoting Jesus here. So if you want to hear Jesus' final words in the New Testament, it's not Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The final words of Jesus come in Revelation chapter 22. Somebody read for us 12 through 16. Somebody read that for us. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Okay, so we're getting a, a glimpse, but we got to admit, there's a lot of poetic or metaphoric language going on here. First of all, for those of you who are dog people, I apologize, but that's what it says in the text. Puts dogs out there with the bad people. Okay, you can take that up with the good Lord later. But he starts saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, our campus ministry is the Alpha Omega campus ministry. What do you think he means by that saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega? What's he getting at? What are are our thoughts? Uh, In the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter and Omega is the last. Okay. He's saying that he's the first and the last. Okay. From beginning to end. All right. I'm the A to the Z. I'm soup to nuts, but that doesn't, that doesn't sound as impressive. Yeah. Um, but all right, I'm the Alpha Omega. But what does he mean by that? Because he, he kind of says it three different ways. Alpha Omega, first to last, beginning in. He says it all three ways. What does he mean? What is he getting at? Uh, you already answered, but I appreciate that. I just want to spread. I want to share the wealth. Yes. I started it. I will end it. Look, I brought you into this world. I take you. <laughs> right. Maybe. <I'll... laughs> How many have heard our parents say that? <laughs> okay. Did you have something else to add to that? Anybody else? She's, I mean, Monica's very close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, baby, I'm it. Right. You know, I think when he's getting at it, guys, I'm the beginning. I'm the end. It's all about Jesus. Okay, sometimes, again, we think of Jesus as kind of God's plan B. Okay? 
God kind of created. God kind of started everything. Oh, sin came in, messed it up. What am I going to do? What am I, I got an idea. Hey, Jesus, why don't you go offer yourself? But Jesus is saying, no, God, I, I was always a part of everything. It was always part of what's going on. From the beginning on through. Now, he goes on to say, they washed their robes. Obviously, that's symbolic. What do we think about this one? Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. I mean, that's pretty important. Jim, you're really good, but I'm, I'm, I'm not holding you back. I'm just going to give some other people an opportunity. Over here. Purified themselves? Anybody else? Yeah. Saved? Yep. We were clothed with Jesus. Right. So we were washing our robes. <laughs> <laughs> or just, just trading them in for new ones, right? Yeah. 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 Now this also can reflect back to Revelation 7. Mm-hmm. Okay. Something that is said there. Somebody read for me. 13 through 17 of Revelation 7. Now here's... This is not Jesus, but John's got this vision. He's kind of invited into heaven. He's seeing some weird stuff. He's talking to this elder. I don't know who this elder is. It's called the elders, who they actually were. Uh, There's a lot of theories on that type of thing, but they're talking, and here's the conversation. Somebody start in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, "These these in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, those who came out of the great tribulation, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I mean, all the way through 17. Oh, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so we're getting very much of this heaven language applied to the people who have washed their robes, which again, it doesn't make sense because you're making them white in the blood. So again, we're talking figuratively or or, or in illustrating. It's purifying by the blood of Jesus because I don't know about you, but anytime, you know, I'm bleeding. It usually causes a stain. Okay, it doesn't. It's not oxy clean, oxy blood. It, it cleanses everything. It doesn't work that way, right? Right. But but they're saying no. The blood of Jesus makes it white. They washed it, so they have somehow connected with Jesus, and then they're entered in this life. And then he mentions down there in verse 17, he lead them to springs of living water. Back in Revelation 22 that we just read a moment ago, <clears throat> verse 17 talks about the having the living water. So we're tying all of this together with this scene in heaven, this new creation. And then he talks about the tree of life. Where's the last time we, we learned about the tree of life? Back in the garden, right. And we talked about, you know, what, is this a physical tree? Is this... You know, everybody, as long as they eat it once a week or once a month and they get to be eternal, I don't know. I don't think it's meant to be that literal personally. I think what it means is it's, a, it's, a, it's an image that says once you're in the garden, you have access to eternal life. Okay? 
you have access to this. And whoever in this new heaven, eternal life, gets to come back. All right? And, and working in that way. There was also, in my studies and prep for this class, you know, there's conjecture of, well, at first it was a garden. Now it's a city. And I'm going, it's where people hang out, okay? It's, it's where people live. <laughs> That's kind of where I've taken, but I'm a simpleton. I don't think there's a ton of imagery of whether it's a garden and now it's a city. See, we've advanced. I'm going, give me a break. First of all, I'm not at all convinced that the bigger the city, the greater the advancement. That's not my opinion. Um, so the human ability, though, to move in and outside of the city and approach the tree of life. We look at these two passages There are those who can enter the city, but there are those who choose not to enter the city. Out there with the dogs and the magic arts back in Revelation 20. There are those who... So I I get the impression that this is not seen as the judgment day end of everything time, in a sense. You know, that time, but that kind of a... You know, it's already going, and there are some that say, I'm not going in there to get eternal life. I'm staying out here and not entering the city and not doing that. Now, there is a judgment day. There is a day when God blows his eternal whistle and says, everybody out of the pool and the game's over. All right? (laughs) Now, this comes on down. When it happens, now, again, let's go back to Revelation 20. See, what I think is going on here is, John's telling this story, telling this story, night 20, 20, you know, he's talking about the end time, the judgment day, the last day. When he hits 22, Jesus comes back and puts a cap on it all, okay, puts a cap on the story. But if we want to do that, but let's see what Revelation 20, and then I'm going to have words of caution about interpreting book of Revelation. Somebody read 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. Now when we see these things, this is kind of that big last day. And again, we got to be careful how we interpret. We love and we'll see in a moment how we take certain pieces of these passages and, and interpret them literally. And other pieces of the exact same passage, sometimes sentences apart, we don't. Okay? Like, do we really think God has some big books? And he actually has physical books. And he's got to look up your name. Phyllis is going, yes. Yes. Or is this way of John communicating to everybody, listen, God knows what's going on. He's got it down. He's not going to forget Okay, it's not going to be, oh, that happened so long ago. He's never going to remember that. <laughs> you know, is this his way of saying, I, I, I don't know. I mean, do we actually think, well, there's a literal, and then what happens if, you know, your name's in the book of life, but then like Paul said, you can, you can lose it 
what did he get erased? How does God have a bookkeeper? Yes, I don't know. But when you think through some of these literal translations, so he said, no, it makes sense that God goes, look, he knows everything. He knows what's going on in your life. He ain't going to forget. And we're going to be judged. And thinking through like that. But at the climactic scene, and this happened, I mean, all of Revelation 20, we picked up in verse 11, but Jesus is cruising in on a white horse. Um, and again, do we think Jesus is physically going to be on a white horse or not? Or is this another image of just a triumphant entrance of Jesus as a conqueror? He's going to banish Satan and his minions. The final judgment is happening. That's it. But when he sees it, something else amazing that he sees that nobody saw coming. We start talking about it in chapter 21. Nobody saw that. And so a lot of us still don't see it coming. And that's what somebody read one through four of 21. We're still in these last judgment day, great day coming by and by. What does it say? One through four. Next the angel showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal. Okay, are we there? Am I? <laughs> chapter 21? I'm sorry, you went to 22. Yeah, yeah. chapter 21. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. passage here some cool stuff but again be careful how specific and literal we interpret things i think if god meant very detailed proofs and information he would have made things very crystal clear but obviously he had another agenda and i think he's trying to get general principles across to us and keep in mind this thing is written to people two thousand years ago in a complete different culture trying to explain to them a spiritual, eternal event to that mindset, that culture. And so he's using some imagery here. Because he uses his statement, there's new heaven, new earth, we'll, we'll get to that. But he says there's not even going to be a sea. There is no more sea there. For those of you who are thinking, heaven to me is sitting on a beach with a little drink with an umbrella in it, <laughs> relaxing, you're out of luck. There's no ocean in heaven. There's no sea in heaven. Is that what he's talking about? Is, is, have we eliminated water? <laughs> have we eliminated the ocean in heaven or is there something else? Any thoughts? What, what do you need water for? I've already washed my robes for crying out loud. Okay, Jim, you're back on. Uh, John, who was on exile on Patmos, okay. the sea represented separation. Okay. Mm. All right. Let's do what? He is on an island. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Jerry. Well, the, Jews, the Jews were not a sea-going people. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was bad, but yeah. I think we ought to keep in mind it's not just to the Jews. Even the seagoing people, the sea was an endless expanse fraught with peril and danger. Okay, and you look at things; it's it's a very mighty destructive force. Even if you talk about, and there's different passages, and I got some of those I think in your notes. Uh, it was a threat. It had wild, weird beasts in it, which I agree. Some of them, you know, nautical critters are just funky looking and, and, and scary. Wow. All right? Shark Week. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Do what? Some of them are tasty. <laughs> who was the first person who looked at a lobster and said, hmm, that looks tasty? I don't know. That was very hungry. Yeah. But Psalm 74 talks about terrifying beasts in the sea. Empire nations that were coming to overthrow them were referred to like, like an ocean. It was just, we cannot resist this powerful force. Because it's seen as, you know, who's going to do that? And even God, to, to show his power, would often say, Hey guys, I'm the one who told the oceans, stop right there. You can't go any further. I'm the one who controls you. Because... The sea and the ocean was seen as, it's a, and it is today. It is outside our control. You're not going to control it. Even as our brother Art Schmidt, you know, doctor of water, in <laughs> uh, and, and all of his studies, they, they, they take him down, you know, he goes down to back during, you know, Katrina when the waters came into uh, uh, New Orleans and did all that damage because the levees had broken. He said, guys, no matter what you do, no matter what you build, nature will find a way eventually. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to circumvent that. You're not going to hold the ocean back with a wall too long. Something can happen. And so the ocean is saying, so when we look at all of these things, God promises. Noah, he said, what was his promise to Noah after the flood? Not gonna, I'm not going to do it with water no more. He said, God is going to one day in Isaiah, that's the Isaiah 27 passage, I'm going, to, I'm going to slay the great dragon of the sea. And then the river flowing from the temple is going to make the dead sea fresh water. Which is kind of a weird, another analogy. But John's vision brings the end and a step further. God's not just going to control evil. God's not just going to subdue evil. He said, it's not even going to exist anymore. The threats upon you are not going to exist. We wonder, what is heaven going to be like? You know, is there going to be bad stuff that God just protects us from? No, it won't even exist anymore. It's not even there. Which is a whole other concept in answering questions to me about how we deal with certain things in heaven. So that oceanless new order is best read as announcing the utter and absolute removal of all external threats to humankind. Which gets us back again to the, to the beginning. Now, he said, yes, sir. Going on your point, as far as verse 4 in Revelation 21, he yep. wipe every tear away. I'm taking that memory from it. You won't experience it. Yeah. The sadness, the pain, it's out of the, it doesn't exist. Now you live with the yeah, and I don't know exactly how that works, because what that means is, 
I won't remember the friends and family who didn't make it. Because I would be very sad. But I'm not sad. Or God changes my heart to where I'm so holy and righteous like he is. I do have a sadness because God has sadness. But it's a different kind of sadness. And it's tempered by his holiness. Um, so I, again, you're right. That one kind of brings up, I don't know, but then that kind of, I have to file that into, I'll have to just wait and see. Yeah, the old order of things has passed away. And you're right, and I appreciate you getting me back to that verse, because that's where we're going back to, that he says, a new heaven and a new earth, okay? A new Jerusalem, happiness and joy and purity, like a new bride, you know, on the wedding day, everything's awesome, unless it's Bridezilla, and then it's like, <laughs> you ever watch that show? That's ridiculous. I find myself screaming at the television. I scream at the groom, run! <laughs> You're marrying into that? You have lost your mind. But, um, but he's talking about, you know, th there's a joy, there's a purity, there's an excitement. The removal of all pain and suffering. And the big key here, and this is where we're getting back to Jesus, the actual dwelling place of God. Look at what he said. God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he dwells with them. Okay. My vision of heaven has always been earth is done away. It's, it's gone. The universe is gone. And we go live at God's place. But what I see here is, no, God comes and lives at our place which he created in the first place. Now, it's new, and it's different. It's new and improved. It's not even improved. It's restored. It's not new in the sense of, take this one, wrap it, throw it away. That's no good. I'm doing it all over again. He says, no, I'm putting this back to what I originally wanted it to be, how I originally created it. When we look uh, in these types of things, in Genesis 3, 8, Adam and Eve, remember, they, they you know, they made the decision, we'll decide what's right and wrong, not God. And we've decided this tree is good, even though God said it's bad, but I know better. That really was the sin. They took the choice out of God's hands and put it in their hands of what was right and what was wrong. So what happens then? That happens, and then, you know, they, they lose all innocence, they lose all purity, they realize, oh my gosh, I'm naked. <laughs> it's like, hello. And then... They're hiding, and then what's God doing? He's just walking around in the garden. That was normal. That God was walking around with his creation. That was the norm. And sin took that out. He took that out. Guys, we say, well, God is with us. God is in control, like the brother shared with me this morning. Jesus is everywhere. He's in our presence. But in reality, we don't, he's, he's not here. I, I get the impression he was there. Right. He really was there. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's trying to give it. Now, even after that happens, we really don't find that again in the Bible. Even when God starts talking to people, they can't even look at him. They can't gaze upon him. He cannot come to him in his pure presence. He's got to come in a whirlwind or in a fire or in something else. 
He's got to be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's got to be something because he goes, I, but, but we see God saying, I want to be with you. I want to connect. I'm desperate to get back to just us going for a walk in the park together and being together. Even with Enoch, we always say, oh, and Enoch walked with God. And if we look at the translation there, and it does say that. He walked with God, but that doesn't necessarily mean he and God were, you know, walking along like footprints in the sand, you know, and all that story. It could very easily just mean he walked in the ways of God. Right. Just like Noah did and other people of his time or, or, or in that, that era did. But we look at all this, and then so God says, I want to be with you. How can I do this? Enter Jesus. All right. In Hebrews chapter 1, somebody read for me, 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Okay, so he goes, I'm coming out. This was God's really first, main, primary, whatever, physical connection with man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That's what John said, that's how he starts out his book in, in John chapter 1. And made his dwelling among us. God became flesh. He goes, I want to be with you. Okay? He's been trying desperately to connect. We're going to see now through this week and next week's lesson, and next week's lesson will blow your ever-living head. Um, God trying to connect with people. When you look in the Old Testament, we see all kinds of weird stuff. The Ark of the Covenant, tabernacles or tents, temples, and all of these types of things. We need to see these things as God desperately working things out to connect with people. And it's not, connect with me, I'm God, you better worship me. It's like, I'm God and I enjoyed so much the intimacy we had Back in the garden, we got to get back to that. We're working our way back to that. The Ark of the Covenant, okay? This is that box. And we're talked about how God, that was the presence of God. Numbers 10, Exodus 25. Wherever the Ark was, good stuff happened. Unless you weren't God's people. And when, you know, then... Bad stuff would happen to you. Um, but in 1 Samuel 4.22, the ark had been stolen by the Philistines. And it was stated, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of the Lord has been captured. They understood when the ark was gone, the glory of God was gone. That was representative, if you will, of God's. Now, the people that took it, the Philistines. I mean, they, they started playing hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. It went from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. And every time it went, everywhere it went, bad stuff happened. And they said, whoa, we don't want get that thing out of here. Okay. And they sent up. Finally, they said, put it on a cart, put some dark, and just aim it towards Israel and slap them. Just get, you know, basically. And, and, and it went back. 
And then some really weird stuff that we don't have time to get into today. Okay. Um, but we'll get into next week about uh, uh, what happened and, and it was set in Shiloh. It stayed there for, for many, many years. Uh, but but there was, you know, later came the tabernacle. Now, what is the tabernacle? You hear that word, tabernacle. It's a fancy word for what? Big old tent. Or maybe several tents, a complex of tents that, you know, all formed one basic place. The tabernacle. All right? And no mortal could enter into God's presence. It had several different, like, layers or zones. And the closer you got to that ark... The fewer got to do it until you got all the way up to where it was just a high priest. uh, And he could only do it once a year. And they had to offer all these sacrifices and all of that sort of things into the the most holy place in this tent. Uh, And you think going through all of that stuff and a lot of that in Leviticus 16 about the sacrifices. But it was very limited. But why was it so limited? Why do you think God limited so much who could go in there and everything else? Why? Okay, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Frank. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I think just to show that he's holy and that he just not anyone can just come up and come up to his tent tearing up his leaves, you know, it's just to establish that there is a respect and I'm different than everyone. Yeah. Okay, I am God after all, right. And, 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 and so it, it is showing that how special it is to be in God's presence. Yeah. Didn't he also have to go through a lot of like different purifications before he could even go in there? Right, so right. There is a standard of you have to be to a certain level of holiness to even be around. Right. Yeah. It, just being in God's presence is not just being in God's presence. He could not be in the presence of, of unrighteousness and things like that. Yeah. And he had to go through all of that. Yeah. Anything else? Because he took it very seriously. set a precedent for how serious he was about interacting with us and just what our standard is for how we interact with him. Okay. All right. Now, what we're going to get into next week is I'm going to go on to the temple next. Okay. Because there's a tabernacle, which was tents. And then we got a temple, which is a permanent structure. There was actually another tabernacle, though. There were two of them. One of them was like that, and only a hand, only the priest. The other one was not like that. We're going to talk about that next week, and that's the one that's kind of blowing my mind. But even after that, this only was in between. It's a very short time. Once the temple came, everything switched back and went to the temple way. Okay, we know Solomon builds this thing. Yet even Solomon said in First Kings eight at the dedication, "Look, the heavens, even the highest heavens, can't contain you. How much less this house that I have built." So they recognize, even though this represents God's presence with us, it's really not. Not like we want it to be. But they had grown so secure. That's why the destruction of the temple was such a dramatic event. Or the stealing of the ark was such an emotional dramatic. God is not. He's gone. Okay? Was God really gone? No, because God wasn't contained in a box. And God wasn't contained in a building. Okay? And he, 
<laughs> that was great. Uh, and even with us sometimes, we say God is with us, but not like he wants to be. Even now today, God is with me, but not like he wants to be. I'm even going to get wild next week and talk about some different things and why I believe God may not have even wanted the temple to be built. I don't even know that he actually wanted that to happen. Which is an interesting little concept to even think about. Uh, But we go on, they're going to build it. The first temple was built and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Okay, Uh, it was it was built about 3000 years ago by King Solomon. Then it was destroyed some, oh, I don't know, uh, 30-something, 40 years, uh, or uh, actually 500-something, 30 years later by Nebuchadnezzar. Then they had to turn around 50 years after that, build it again. During the time of Jesus, it was in the process of being expanded, added on to, being built bigger. And then Rome came and wiped it all out in AD 70. And it's never been reestablished again. The thing is, God had grander plans all along. For his desire was never to live in the temple, but directly with humans once more. That is always what he has wanted, is to get back to that. He was walking in the garden. Except he doesn't want the, he was walking in the garden, but he found Adam and Eve and they were in sin. Uh, He didn't want that one. So his first major physical human step was becoming that flesh. So, Jesus' human flesh was kind of like the tabernacle. Okay? In the fact that on the outside, it doesn't appear, I mean, it's nice and it's cool, but it's not God. It's what's on the inside that counts. When Jesus, what John said about him, he says, hey, there was Jesus, but we saw his signs, we saw his miracles, we saw the things he did, and we began to realize this guy was the Son of God. Uh, in John 1, 14, he says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. On his outside appearance, you know, the Bible says there was nothing on the outside that made us go, wow, that's awesome. He, he, he must be God. Look at him. He's an Adonis. He's, 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 no, there was nothing. Like, it was all really his power. Because even can, can God, can, can, uh, can God contain, can a body contain God? Really? Jesus was like the temple, but he said himself in Matthew 12, 6, look, something better than the temple is here. Better than the temple. Now, guys, we don't connect with that because we don't put our security in a temple like they did. That temple meant God is with us. That's why it's so big. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why it's covered with gold. That's why it's got diamonds. And it's got all kinds of... And only the holy of holies can the one... Because God is there. There's security. Everything was tied to that place. They made pilgrimages to that place. That was special holy ground. And Jesus is going, I'm better than that. I'm better than... And that's one of the reasons, that's another one of the reasons I got so ticked off. That would be the equivalent of someone coming up to saying, I'm better than your faith. Your faith in God, I'm better than that. You would be going, say what? (laughs) Yeah, we would be insulted. But this is a claim that Jesus Jesus makes. And then you've got that whole thing happening. 
upon the, Jew, uh, the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus. He's hanging on the cross out here on Golgotha. And something happens way down in the temple. What happens? The curtain. What curtain? The curtain separating from the Holy of Holies. Okay, separating who? What? Yeah, separating virtually everyone from God. <laughs> the barrier between everyone and God is torn in half miraculously. When this Son of God, this God man, dies way over here. Okay, and all of that's in Mark 15, Matthew 27, and stuff. Torn in two, and then it does mention from top to bottom. Before that, only the high priest, like we said. He's got to purify himself. He's got to go through all of this. It is very special. It is very unique. It is very exclusive. Now, all of a sudden, it's none of those places. Right then, anything could go to enter. And in Hebrews 9.12, somebody read that. Uh, Hebrews 9.12. This is kind of... Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Okay, well... Okay, so he entered that most holy place. Jesus entered the presence of God once for all. Now we could say once for all time, or he could say once for all. For everybody. I'm going in. And you know, when I do go in, it's kind of like the, uh, the uh, equivalent of kicking the door down. The door's down. You can, every, come on in. Everybody else can come on in now. The door's not going to shut again. I'm not just going through the curtain. I'm eliminating the curtain. Even in this, God is with us, but he's not really with us. But he's with us. Jesus is saying, no, now you can come on in. And that's why in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, says what? Therefore is what it starts out with. So, you know, all of this stuff is happening. Therefore, what? Hebrews 10, 19. Okay, we're getting back to being washed. We're getting back to pure living waters. We've got the blood of Jesus. We've got the most holy place. We've got the curtain. All of this stuff getting tied in. It says, therefore, since this Jesus, who was from the beginning, he's there at the ending. He's involved in the whole process. This curtain now gets ripped in half. It's opened the way for us, a living way. It's opened for us through the curtain. We got this great high priest. What did the high priest do? He went into the presence of God and represented all of us in the, in the presence of God. He says, but now because of that, we can all draw near to God. 
Okay, with a sincere heart and a full assurance that allegiance brings. Again, it's not faith. There's allegiance to Jesus because that's how I get to Jesus. Having our hearts sprinkled and cleanses from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed. When we unite with Jesus, we too become like a temple. Matter of fact, we are compared to, as we're coming in for a landing in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, and then 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and, and, and I'll just read 3, 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. That tabernacle. Because God says, I want to be with you. The physical temple, I want to be with you. Jesus, I'm wanting to be with you. I'm coming down. Now because of that, you are the temple. You are the, with the presence of God. Now there's still another step. When God eliminates all the bad, when we talked about the, 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 the end day and all of that other stuff, but we've got the presence of God. We can have that confidence. It's convincing us of that. Our emotions, our lack of self-esteem, our low self-esteem, our I'm not that great. we got to elim- and realize all of that's a lie of the devil. It's all a lie of the devil. God is desperate to just be with you, to share with you, to have that fellowship that he had back in the garden before sin came. That is what God wants. Next week, we're going to t- continue to fo- follow through on this temple bit and talk about this third, well, the second tabernacle and what it really, really, uh, kind of what the differences were and how that uh, becomes unique for us. All right, we'll talk about that next week. Thanks a lot. We'll be going next door in 15 minutes.